Hi everyone, I'm Duncan Rayburn and this is my Unorthodoxy podcast and here are some more thoughts and reflections on this time of crisis and contagion. I want to offer, as best as I am able, some reflections on the meaning and finding meaning in the midst of this maelstrom with reference to some biblical symbols and stories. In this episode I want to look at two concepts, namely time and space. But before I get to that, a little background may be helpful as to why I'm going to be discussing those things in relation to the present crisis. I just want to begin with a simple observation, something that many of you will have noticed too, and it is this. The reactions to COVID-19, this pandemic, have been many and varied. Sometimes an array of reactions have come from the same individual who's found their own thoughts challenged and reshaped as new information has come to light. Typically, in times of crisis, five responses are normal. Fleeing, fighting, freezing, fawning, and finding. In other words, people will try to get away, try to face the trouble head-on, be paralyzed, go with whichever flow is around them, or dive into just trying to understand what is going on before they act. Well, I think other responses are open to us too. Some, as I've said, have adopted joking as their go-to coping mechanism. In fact, if you want to get a sense of the different reactions uh, in a novel, I've already mentioned Albert Camus' novel The Plague. He amazingly taps into precisely the, the kind of array of reactions that we've seen at this time. Reading his novel is a little bit like reading an account of our own time, which is quite something. These many reactions have been manifesting in all kinds of ways. Some have jumped onto the bandwagon of various conspiracy theories. Others have gravitated towards a deep interest in epidemiological practices, while others plan and plot in various ways around their lives. Some have been wonderful and helpfully proactive in whichever way they can, and many virtues have certainly been evident. Some leaders have really stepped up to the challenge, for example, although sadly not all of them. Vices have been exposed too. Just before South Africa went into total lockdown on the 27th of March, many people had pre-lockdown parties, um, celebrations with many attendants in the same space. So apparently the purpose of the lockdown hadn't dawned on them. Many have been trying to hoard supplies and have been panic buying excessive amounts of toilet paper and hand sanitizer and alcoholic drinks. The other day in a supermarket ahead of South Africa's planned 21-day lockdown, a woman near me had packed her shopping trolley full of wine. And as I listened to her defensively joking with the till lady about this, I realized that this woman is more than likely an alcoholic. And this made me think that she's trying to cope by stocking up on booze. I guess others are coping by stocking up on other things. These different reactions, from partying to conspiracy theory mongering to panic buying, can be thought of as meaning-making practices. In times of crisis, as all responses show, people naturally try to focus on something or a few things in an attempt to anchor themselves. I'm not willing to judge anyone harshly at this point for any specific response they adopt. In a way, you could argue that even the most rationalistic response probably has some underlying irrationalism or maybe a-rationalism. If I can string a coherent sentence together, if I can offer a map to explain some of what's going on, this doesn't necessarily eradicate my irrationality, but is 
possibly even just a sublimation of it. All of these things, all of our responses, signal a fundamental truth about our being. We are profoundly dependent beings. Given our enworlded natures, meaning is not something we can manufacture apart from our worlds. We turn to other ideas, other thoughts, things, people, etc. And by doing so, we announce to ourselves and to others that we cannot do this alone. Even the more positive, say, epidemic of sharing memes and videos and jokes and information that I've experienced recently is an indication that our getting through this time is about our relation to the world and to others. Which brings me at last to the question of how this relates to time and space. Well, to explain this, it helps to look at the symbolic cosmos of the scriptures. In the scriptures, when God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, we have two ideas playing off each other. The idea of the earth being this formless void, symbolized very strongly by chaotic water, and the other being heaven, which is the idea of informing, forming, and transforming. And this is symbolized by the air and the sky. This heaven and earth dialectic then gets taken a step further. When heaven informs, forms, and transforms the chaotic waters, land and sea are separated. God separates these two things. The the presence of the sea suggests that chaos is still present in some way, but God has caused land to emerge. Solid ground is found within the midst of the chaotic waters. Now, you will see this symbol played out in many ways throughout the scriptures. The Noah story, which I referred to in the previous episode, suggests the same idea. Noah and his family and those animals are all floating in an ark. They're on a kind of temporary structure that only approximately imitates the nature of land. It's a kind of unstable stability, a temporary solution to the problem of needing to find land. So when the rains calm down, Noah knows he needs to find actual land, actual stability and order. Noah sends out a dove. He does this three times. First, the dove goes out and returns with nothing. Second, the dove returns with a plucked olive leaf, which is a symbol of land, but also of life bursting out from the midst of death. And third, the dove then does not return, which offers the idea that the dove has found a home, a place of genuine rest. The pattern of this ark on turbulent waters is echoed in the story of Moses, who as a baby is placed in a mini-ark and given over to the turbulent waters of the Nile, where through the interventions of his sister Miriam and the Egyptian princess, he finds land too. The idea of land emerging and cutting a path through the chaos is also found later on in the story of the great exodus, where Moses and his people are stuck on the shore of the Red Sea with the devil behind them and a drowned world ahead of them. And then God cuts a path for the Israelites, leading them to safety. Some scholars read this as a story of the birth or creation of Israel as a real nation. That oddball collective of slaves is given a brand new identity. But we need to take all of this a step further and notice that water and land symbolize two dimensions of our being, namely time and space. Water represents time and the more turbulent dimension of existence, and land represents the more stable, ordered dimension of existence, which is space. Time and space are always, as we know, interwoven, but one of the more interesting features of the modern world, following the invention of the clock and more recently of digital time, 
is that time has started to dominate and swallow up space. You can find this hinted, especially in Martin Heidegger's famous philosophical work, Being and Time, in which Heidegger identifies being with time. Being, for him, is time. Although, as I read him, Heidegger certainly allows space to feature more strongly in his later work. But you can also see the stress on time, for instance, in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Time is the thing that for Eliot needs to be redeemed. Douglas Rushkoff has a marvelously readable book called Present Shock, in which he argues that we have been forced by the digital realm into a state of extreme presentism, where the past and the future are unbelievably and unbearably alien to us in ways that the ancient world would have found catastrophic. The dominant question of our age is, what now, not where from or what next? This struck me powerfully when I once visited some friends a few years ago and they spent nearly a full hour just browsing Netflix, not once selecting anything to actually watch, but paralyzed in a state of present shock, simply stuck in an indeterminate present. And, and that's, I, I guess, the irony of this presentism is that we are not even capable of being fully present. I've heard people talk about this phenomenon. The possibilities are endless, and so you would think that people are more open to the future. But the present has, in a way, overheated and is burning out. Too much is happening all at once. And the result has been that the future has been rendered more and more incomprehensible to us. Time has swallowed space the way that the ocean swallowed up the Titanic. And so the flood is analogous to time drowning out our sense of space. In a sense, it represents a slightly disproportionate relationship between time and space, with time overtaking space. This has been true for us for a long time now in the realm of electronic media, which allow time to overwhelm and swallow up space. The culture of always on with message and email notifications interrupting and invading every moment of life is a culture of time devouring space. Another biblical symbol for time swallowing up space is that of Leviathan. You can see this in many Jewish mythologies as well. You also get that image of the great fish swallowing up Jonah or even the tomb that symbolically speaking swallows Jesus after his crucifixion. You even get a hint of this in, in the story of Daniel placed in a lion's den, this idea that his time is up. The lions represent this kind of monstrous dimension of time. And this is then, it's echoed in so many different mythologies. You can even find it in the example of that Captain Hook hunting crocodile in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. It has a clock inside it, which suggests the march of time. It's also, of course, a symbol of death, which is approaching us all. This idea is also echoed in the approach and inevitable attack of a monster in a monster movie. You'll see in monster movies how cityscapes are completely destroyed. It's this idea of entropy moving quicker than normal. But you'll notice, for instance, in the Godzilla films that the monster does battle over territory. As time marches on, territory becomes more important. As I read it, what has happened in recent weeks has been that time has become even more overextended. I've really been struck by how the COVID-19 pandemic has been registered through two dominant visual media, namely through timelines and then through maps of the spread. And yet the physical maps of the spread have been 
rather less detailed than the timelines. The maps speak in a mostly vague way. It's easy to figure out, for instance, that the virus has spread to any given country, but to figure out where in particular, say in South Africa, the virus has spread, well, the data becomes less clear. Maybe this will change, but it seems to me that maybe this will change, but it does seem to me that time is the thing that is dominating these visual media. In a sense, then, we are still in a situation where space is interpreted through time, at least through a highly exaggerated sense of time. I'm sure you're aware, as I have been, of how the statistics have been framed in decidedly temporal terms. Even the idea of flattening the curve is an attempt to slow time down, which is right, of course. So, amazingly, quite intuitively, we have felt the remedy on our bodies in space. We have naturally tried to create space to cope with the sheer overwhelming sense of time's march. Now we are becoming aware of the fact that the antidote to the sheer pace of life is to create space, and especially in more recent days to the overwhelming sense of time speeding up in connection with the accelerating spread of COVID-19. At this time, many of us are confined to our own spaces and have been made acutely aware of what it means to interact with spaces beyond our homes. When you look at the Noah story, for example, you will notice a very strong sense of the importance of space in it, especially in the selecting of animals, in compartmentalizing them in terms of clean and unclean, and then compartmentalizing them in terms of the ark itself. The ark itself has particular dimensions, which can be taken as an assertion of the importance of establishing a right proportion between time and space through reclaiming space. This idea is carried through in the book of Leviticus, especially around questions of purity and impurity, which are established according to a very strong sense of rigor and even, you might say, rigidity. In our world, reading Leviticus can be a very strange and possibly even alienating experience. It is a book of incredibly odd laws in a way, with distinctions that do not necessarily conform to any obvious unifying principle. Many of the norms assumed in that book are very weird to us now. I'm thinking specifically of chapters 11 to 15, where laws around distinctions between the clean and the unclean are noted. But maybe now some of us will have a sense of the value of this way of thinking. One of my friends has suggested that we try to work through a process of cleaning our homes rigorously, clean the surfaces that you touch often, including doorknobs, handles, doorknobs, window fasteners, light switches, that sort of thing, the whole, the whole house. And then my friend suggests using this cleaning up exercise as a spiritual practice, as a way to think about relational spaces that need cleaning up, forgiveness that needs to be happening, or just using our cleaning up as a way to pray for people in our immediate and less immediate spaces that we interact with. This is the more, I would say, spiritually astute version of something like Marie Kondo's approach to cleaning up spaces, or maybe it's a bit like the various movements towards minimalism and stoicism that have emerged in our culture recently. When we are overwhelmed, when there is a flood, we need to find land. Where time mixes things up, space becomes a way of finding clarity. If time mixes things up, 
causes a spread of contagion, guarding our spaces becomes a new way to reframe how we love God, others, and even ourselves. On the first day of lockdown, with everyone in their own spaces, I woke up to a world that sounds different. I live right next to a bird sanctuary, as some of you will have picked up from just listening to this podcast, but there's been a change. I can hear the birds without the sound of cars going by. And in the calm of that first morning of lockdown, I felt the truth of a familiar scripture very differently than before. And so I'll move to a close by just reading that passage from St. Matthew's recollection of Jesus' words in chapter 6 of his gospel. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Of course, many of the things that Jesus mentions have have a much more symbolic value than many of us will pick up. He's not just talking about literal food and clothing, but about what we take to be that which satisfies us or that which uh, protects us and guards us. Maybe this time can be a time of thinking about what is most important, seeking God's kingdom first, seeking to figure out how to love God, love others and love ourselves. So may you in this time find a way to make space for yourself and especially to create spaces within which you can be at rest and at peace. I think this is certainly some of the meaning of the Noah's story, that he finds a space that, yes, it, it's not necessarily a space without its complications, but it is a space within which he can be somewhat at rest and at peace. I know it is a strange time, and certainly I'm very aware that there are difficulties in it too, but when space is established, perhaps time will feel less like an enemy than it usually does. To close off, I just want to play you a song I wrote um, a while ago. It was actually written at a time of, of quite a bit of turbulence. Uh, one of my dear friends um, was killed in an accident, and and in reflecting on many things and in processing that, this, this song emerged. It is not a great recording. I recorded it on an iPhone, but this was done in a moment where I could find some space to just think about the meaning of of that time. And what is interesting to me is how the song 
is reframed differently because of the present. So maybe you'll find something in it that is of value. Grace and peace to all of you. I see you standing on that shore Concerned eyes watch the tide come in The devil right behind you Ahead of you a drowned world You stretch your hand out, say the word The spirit hovers over hell There be light.